Welcome to episode 157 of On The Schmooze. Let's do this. Welcome to On The Schmooze, the podcast that highlights talented people from different fields, explores how they built strong networks, and overcame challenges on their way to becoming successful leaders. Now here's your host, Robbie Samuels. I recently came back from Influence, the National Speakers Association Conference. It's the speaking industry's main event and attracts thousands of professional speakers. It was my fifth time attending and it was notably different than my first time. Think about the first time you attended a big industry event. Like a kid in a candy store, you consume tons of content without any concentrated focus or niche. You burn through all of your energy reserves trying to attend everything for fear of missing out. You felt alone while surrounded by thousands of people. You didn't have anyone to sit with during meals or invite you out for drinks. The word overwhelming is usually a good description for that first conference. You knew that the first year would be like drinking from a fire hose, but you figure the second year will be much better. Year two is better only in degrees. You're still trying to attend too many sessions and haven't quite figured out which topics deserve your full attention and which can be skipped. You now know enough people to invite someone to have lunch with you, but you still find yourself alone during much of the event. At the end of your second event, you're not quite convinced this is the right space for you and wonder whether you should come back. That is why so many association members never get to year three of their industry's event. Those that do find that year three, things start to fall into place. Year three, it's much easier to say no to some sessions and pace yourself, knowing you'll run into people you know in the halls or lobby bar and have a great conversation. And that conversation might provide you the insight you were looking for. Year three is when you start making the kinds of relationships that you'll keep up with throughout the year. If you get to year five, this event will feel like a reunion and you'll commit to fitting it into your schedule because you never want to miss it. And then suddenly it's year 10 and then year 20 and you can look back at the many people who have inspired, encouraged, and mentored you throughout your career. Your challenge for this week, consider where you are on this journey. If you're heading into year two, know that it won't be vastly easier than the year prior, but you can start to be choosier about where you spend your time and who you seek out for company. If you're heading into year three, book a reservation for dinner one of the last nights so you can invite people as you run into them. If you've been going more than five years, it's your turn to focus on how you can give back to your industry and welcome newcomers to your industry's biggest event. Volunteer at the event, join a committee, step into leadership whenever you see the chance. That's how you'll get the attention of the folks who've been attending for 10, 15, even 20 or more years. Try this and let me know how it goes. Now, onto this week's show. Today's guest helps people shift the way they perceive and respond to change and adversity, helping them to see opportunities instead of obstacles. After a devastating accident that left her quadriplegic and dependent on a wheelchair at age 12, she learned the true meaning of resilience. Instead of slowing down, she's used her life experience and personal philosophies to become Australia's leading keynote speaker and facilitator on resilience. She helps corporate leaders be their best in challenging times. She's the author of How to Be Resilient and is frequently featured in national media for insights on resilience in the workplace. Her Say Yes and Figure Out How Later approach to life has helped her achieve remarkable feats like starring in a feature film with no acting experience, 
competing at a national level in para-athletics after 22 years on the sidelines and running for parliament. Please join me in welcoming Stacey Kopas. Hello, pleasure to be here with you, Robbie. Stacey, thank you so much for joining us from your office in Sydney, Australia. It's a pleasure. Um, I've enjoyed getting to know you and I'm thrilled that you're here. As you know, this is a show about leadership and building strong networks. So tell me, how do you define leadership and when did you realize you had the skills to lead? Leadership's quite fascinating and it's something that I feel that I feel that others probably see it in us before we actually feel that we are leaders ourselves and that I feel has certainly been the case for me. Uh, I really see leadership as being an energy rather than a title and, and I think that there's definitely a lot of times that there's probably mix a mix-up between leadership and management and leadership I really feel is creating a space to strike the balance between you know meeting vision and big picture objectives while also helping to you know facilitate the growth and meet the aspirations of a team and the people that are working towards achieving that vision and I, I remember reading many years ago someone asked a question that says when do you become a leader and there was a great discussion and the ultimate outcome was it's like when you decide that you're a leader and and anyone can be a leader and i feel that it's we all have a we all have a circle of influence some of our circles of influence are wider reaching than others but it's actually recognizing that we all have that ability to influence and lead and inspire and instill belief in people I feel is a really strong part of leadership as well so a lot of it is actually it's about creating the path rather than following the path and it's something that I found really it's, it's been quite fascinating to I guess evolve and then see yourself as a leader and it's something that I've also been working on for helping people to actually realize that they're leaders and because a lot of people don't see themselves as that um particularly I feel with women, um, there's that element of probably imposter syndrome and some self-esteem and some confidence issues where we sort of feel, no, we're not leaders, you know, who are we to put forward these ideas? Who are we to, um, you know, be out in front of others and forge the way? So that's been something that's really quite interesting. So really having that ability to influence to, um, yeah, it's around an energy rather than a title. As far as when I sort of seen it was actually it's really interesting to actually reflect back and in hindsight have a look at all those moments in our lives where we probably have demonstrated these leadership abilities and I think they're probably the having a younger brother was probably a starting point of uh, of having some of those skills but looking back um you know from, from the time I was probably even in you know preschool before school and into you know my earliest schooling I was always involved in sports was a big one so I found that you know sports particularly team sports um, definitely brings out the ability to demonstrate leadership and inspire and motivate and rally the troops towards a common goal um, has been interesting and I think one of the interesting things I found too particularly in my later um, you know um, earlier schooling is recognising, and I'm not quite sure what it's like, um, you know, in the US and other parts of the world, but in Australia there's this whole thing about, you know, making sure everybody gets a turn type of thing. So I still remember when it came to, you know, school student leadership and there was, 
um, you know, nominations and voting for our school captains. And I still remember in my class, all these kids said, I really wanted to vote for you for our school captain, but you're our bell ringer. So we thought that somebody else needed to have that shot. So that was really quite interesting, realising that in the context, um, you know, in Australia, even that early age, there was that perception that we all need to really have a turn rather than, um, you know, every, you know, a clear leader or someone emerging. So that was really quite fascinating. And I know at the time I was a little bit, I was a bit put out and sort of going, oh, geez, why did I, why did I ever say yes to being a bell ringer? I've missed out on being a school captain now. Uh, but it was just, that was really quite interesting. And then throughout, you know, my high school years, I really shied away a lot from any of that stuff until my sort of later years, I got involved in some youth groups, um, different committees and, you know, really started to get involved in stuff like that um, into my sort of working life, it was I ended up becoming um, a safety manager and I think that's because my my employer saw that here I was, a young woman in my mid-20s that had rapport and influence and great communication with a workshop of all of these mostly older men and so I ended up being, you know, the only woman in a workshop of 80 men in that leadership role because they saw that I had that communication and rapport and ability to influence. This is all so good. I, I want to take a minute just to kind of digest it and see what I can pull from it. So first of all, I love this use of energy. Earlier we were talking about the, like, and of course, the distinction between leadership and management, but that there's an energy to it and that it's about forging your own path and not just like following paths that are already there. So there's just that. Those, so good, I like the symbolism, but I also feel like there's like something named that I haven't heard. And I've heard a lot of people talk about the definition of leadership. So the energy piece seems key. And I also appreciate you going way back. Like a lot of times when I ask people like, when did you first, you know, realize you had the skills to lead? They mentioned, you know, business school or maybe, maybe they'll talk about college, but you were like, so preschool, <laughs> I love that because it's, you know, it's innate. Like you have that in you and particularly having a younger sibling, um, you can see how, you know, it doesn't, I didn't mean you were a good leader. I just meant that you, you know, had the skills uh, initially, the inspiration, but also that people saw that in you. I, you know, that others saw that potential in you. You know, I've heard um, people talk about um, like who you are doesn't change um, if you win the lottery or have a horrible accident, you are who you are. Like there might be a transition time that, you know, we go through a transition period, but two years later, if you were miserable and you won the lottery, two years later, you're still miserable. Um, so a lot of who you are today, you already were. And then it, like when you're talking about resilience and overcoming adversity, I mean, like it's so clear you had like the beginnings of this already in your life you were stepping into, into different kind of opportunities. So I, I just think it's so great to think about. Um, th and there's a phrase, and, um, my friend Jenny uh, talks about it all the time, uh, Jenny Lisk, who has a great podcast um, for widowed parents. It's the Widowed Parents Podcast. And she talks a lot about sort of resilience in that, in that context. And um, that coming through, you, you become stronger through it. So some people come through adversity stronger. So I just want to drop that in there and we'll talk about that in a minute. But um, I, I just think it's so cool to think about like the who you were 
and then where you are today, like there's a through line, even if maybe at the time you don't always see it. Oh, for sure, for sure. And I agree with you that that um, on the piece around there's, there's elements of who we are before some of these big transitions in our lives. And what I've really found is I feel that dealing with major adversity or major success, I find that it actually magnifies who and what we already were. And that's something that I feel, you know, particularly after going through, you know, a grieving and all of those sort of things. But once you sort of get through that and you get to another end and you do look back and you look in hindsight and you go, yeah, there were elements of it there. Um, so that's what I sort of see. It's like, you know, with, and particularly we talk about people that win the lottery and things like that. It's like, you know, if they were um, a miserly, stingy, nasty person, then, you know, let's just 100 times that. <laughs> well, and I also think that in a sense that if um – if someone achieved success but didn't feel like they earned it, they wouldn't feel good about it. And they'd be nervous that it would all come, like it would be a house of cards to them. Like when will someone figure out that they actually don't deserve this? That imposter syndrome would, would be like bigger than ever. You know, <laughs> like they'd have more to lose as opposed to someone who felt really confident in how they arrived there. So it, yeah, I think we, this is the self-work we all have to do as we're trying to be successful in life. And if something happens, we still have to do that work. I mean, that's, that's kind of what, you know, part of the message I think I'm hearing from this. So you, you, um, you, I, you're, you're like, I, as a parent, the accident, it was horrific to learn about. And if anyone wants to read about it, it's all there. <laughs> it's in your book. <laughs> and I go get the book, go get the book, how to be resilient. I'm not going to give it all away. Um, because this is a show about untold stories, and that one has been told, and I, you can go read about it. But it, but it really like creepy crawled my my like skin because I'm a parent, um, and yet I also was thinking, wow, but like look who you became, you know, like the work you're doing, the impact you're having. I I want to actually hear more about what you find most rewarding about what you're able to do now, and the impact you're having on the world. Look, it's something that. I look back and I can say with absolute certainty that I've been able to do so much more than I ever would have had my life taken the path that I'd planned it. That's that's no doubt of that. But it did take me a really, really long time to get over what I call the little old me syndrome where it's like, oh, there's nothing special about me. There's nothing to see here. I'm just getting on with life. Um, and it's interesting because it's often the things that we find the most effortless are the things that are the most valuable to other people. So, you know, it's been, I didn't even start, I didn't even share my story publicly until it was about seven and a half years ago. It was the first time I ever did it. So it was a very long time. It was over, it was over 20 years after I had my injury did I ever get to the point of sharing. And it was only because I had a mentor say to me, you know, get over yourself. It's not about you. It's about an audience. And if you don't share your story, you're being selfish. And I'm like, how can I argue with that? So it was those first couple of times when I did share my story and not just share my story, but share the lessons that, and then share those lessons in a context that was applicable to particularly a business community, particularly to leaders that are going through change and adversity. And it was once I started getting, just having an audience completely in the palm of your hand for an hour, not even moving, just having that amazing energetic connection and then the, then the conversations that you have afterwards and realising that 
because of the adversity that I've been through, I'm now able to create a space for other people to be able to be vulnerable to share what they've done, what share what they've they've particularly learning um, or they've experienced, and then be able to actually give them some really tangible, practical, and simple things that they can do to actually go, wow, this actually is an opportunity rather than it being something that is um, confronting or you know negative or any of those things. So I've got to the point now where I just feel this deep moral responsibility to, you know, to, to do what I do, to continue on my own personal journey, to continually learn, to go within, to learn, to then share, connect. Um, and I just feel it's a, such a privilege now. So every time I, you know, I, I, before I go on stage, I feel this, you know, this buzz and I picture that one person in the audience that I know that by sharing what I share is going to help them particularly, potentially alter the entire trajectory of their life from something that they may have been unhappy with or struggling with to just give them just that insight to go well look if I've been able to do what I have from where I started purely by being resourceful and being very practical along the way then here's 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 a it's almost like giving them I don't know it's it's creating the space and giving them permission to actually go yeah I can actually go after this yeah, so, it probably gives them so some hope. Rewarding. Yeah, it does. It hope, does. But also hope based on some reality too. Not pie in the sky. It's like it's going to be hard work, but it's possible. No matter what it is you're facing, it's possible. And you're almost like I'm living proof that it's possible. I mean, look at me sitting here. I saw on your Facebook uh, that you know you had the picture from 28 years ago. You know of you lying there flat in a hospital, like just unable to do anything. And then 28 years later, there you are on stage <laughs> with everyone like leaning in to listen. And, you know, you know, the thing is your 11 year old self would never have imagined you on stage. <laughs> you know, like, my 30 my, my year old self would never have imagined me yeah. on stage. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, before or after, it wouldn't matter. Like you were never going to do that. Um, and I also, this, this idea that you're, I love the idea that you're, you understand that you're creating like almost a container for a conversation that's super uncomfortable that most people just don't, they almost want to ignore and assume that they're the only ones facing whatever they're facing. And that might be true on like a granular level, like they're having their own experience, but they're not the only ones struggling. And I think this is especially true for leaders, for people who have achieved success, they often don't find they have a place to share the struggles they're facing because they're the leader. Right, so it's kind of lonely. It's like the whole lonely at the top thing. So, I, I, now I also want to note. So, you were in your early thirties when you finally started to share, and you said a mentor. I want to underscore that because the fact I love I love when mentors come up on this show because it's so powerful that your mentor was like, "Hey, get over yourself," and you're denying other people like by not sharing this. Um, what did you feel when when you heard that? Because that that both sounds true and kind of harsh. It was a harsh dose of reality. Um, and because I said to him in that, because I was in a workshop and I was in this particular workshop because I wanted to learn how to write better because I've always had people say, oh, look, you know, it'd be great if you shared your story in a book or something and I never, ever wanted to speak and I never wanted to share my story. I was happy to 
start to learn to speak to be able to tell the stories of others but not my own. And, again, coming back to the Australian context, the tall poppy syndrome is rife here. So we've been brought up to not stand out, not say you're good at anything, um, seeing people just cut down continually. So there was never, there was a fear around actually getting out. And I said to this particular mentor, I said, I don't want to share my story because I don't want everyone to think I'm a complete tosser for doing that. And he was the one that said to me, he goes, again, get over yourself, it's not about you. And so there was, a, there was two things. As you said, it was confronting but it was also it was part of it was almost giving me permission to go, look, you can do this. Um, but then it also, when you shift the focus from how your internal self and then you go, others need this, others need me. And so I think any time we're struggling with feeling um, self-conscious or doubts or anything like that, if we can... In, even in any given moment, flip it around and go, okay, how can I help somebody else? And by doing that, it takes the attention off us and so often by helping other people, we end up solving our own problems as well. Yeah, this is actually relates really interestingly to imposter syndrome or when people say, well, what's the point of me writing a book? Everyone's already talked about, like it's already been said, like, th- like there's already a book out there about this. <laughs> you know, like who am I? But there's somebody who needs to hear your version of the story because they'll relate better to your version of the story, the way you say it, or you know, or they'll, they'll feel connected more to you, and then it'll you, they'll hear it better. So, you know, yes, like whenever, and actually, whenever you're feeling down, the best way out of that is to go help somebody else. I mean, that's just like that's scientifically now proven um, as a way to sort of move you out of your own sort of slump. But I just want to. What was the 20 years in between? Like, I, I, I love hearing the last, you know, what, eight years or so that you've been developing yourself as a speaker, writing, you know, you have a book, um, you know, you're creating such an impact. But like, what was the, it's so funny. I often ask people like, what was most challenging? <laughs> but <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if you could pick one thing. I guess, how did you make this shift from, like victim to thriving, like individual, like when did you, and did you, was it gradual or did you suddenly realize, no, I've got this. I'm just going to, I'm just doing this. You know, did your, that internal resolve kick in at some point or where you just sort of like gradually like, wait, an awakening, I am okay. I can do this. Like, what does that look like on your, for you? I was like, everyone's story is different, but for you. It was a little from column A, a little from column E, and it was particularly because I, I had my I had my injury at 12 years old, so I was at the end of my um, primary schooling and I was about to go into high school. So it was a difficult time for anybody at that age, you know, going into teenage years, going into, you know, into senior school. Um, yeah, just there was so much that was challenging. And so I I spent many, many years in, in, a, in a deep, dark rut and I... I had very unhealthy ways of dealing that and I spent a lot of time drunk and stoned through my high school years, which was very unconstructive. And but it was just it was a gradual thing through those high school years where I got to the point where I'm like, yeah, I'm wasting my life. I'm getting I felt foggier and foggier. Um, it's a bit of a downward spiral when 
you know, you do, you get these moments of artificial happiness and then the in-between you end up deeper and deeper and I hid that from everybody. I was really good at this facade. I never spoke to anybody about how I was feeling. Um, it was something, yeah, so it was a gradual getting to a point where I'm like, hang on, I'm wasting my life. And so as I got towards the end of high school, I, you know, stopped stopped getting stoned. I stopped drinking for a long period of time after I finished high school. And then again, now I, I haven't um, had any alcohol for nearly five years and I won't go back to it. That's been a huge shift for me. But I did find myself in, you know, at one particular a rock bottom moment where I was so close to, you know, not being here at all. And it was only the thought that someone would find me before I was gone and I'd end up worse than what I was, where I was, was the only thing that stopped me in that moment. And that that really scared me that I had found myself in that headspace. You, you hear about other people and we... You sort of think, what what can really be what can really be so bad that you find yourself at that point? And I did, and that was probably that final shift to sort of go, hang on, it's the you know proverbial fork in the road. Do you get on with it or do you give up? And that's when I knew I had to get on with it, and that was, you know, and no one knew about that until I wrote my book because I was again, there's this, that shame and that stigma. And I never spoke to anybody. I never saw a psychologist. I never saw a counselor. No one knew. Wow. That must have been such a shock for your close family and friends to, to read about that. And by then it was, you know, 15 years later. Yeah. So were you about 20 years old when this started to shift or a little younger? A little bit younger. So it was yeah. late, high, late high school. And then once I sort of got out into the workforce and basically got on and was doing what all of my peers were doing, I had a job, you know, I had a boyfriend, I you know, I had a car, I, was, I had a you know, very regular life. And I think that that, again, sort of seeing that, um, but also, you know, through that whole process, I've always had this desire to make a difference. So, but not knowing how. And that led me to getting involved in, you know, boards and committees, eventually, you know, politics and all those things um, because I always knew there was something there. And I think that's what really drove me forward is going, well, again, focusing on how I could help somebody else rather than getting so bogged down in my stuff. Yeah, yeah, which is – and then eventually led you to that writing session, which is where you found a mentor, and here we are back back to today. That's, thank you for sharing that. And it's, it's such a painful moment. Um, I've done uh, some trainings for people around uh, suicide prevention. And there's a, a training called Question, Persuade, Refer, QPR. Um, and I, and I, anyone who's thinking, wow, I really should learn more about that. You should go learn more about that. I, I think it's something we should all um, be more aware of and talk more openly about because even you sharing that right now, you could be helping someone like listening for themselves or for someone they know. Like this is part of telling the power of storytelling. It's like, it's really incredible. So as you developed this network, I mean, I think that as you shifted, right, you changed, you had a you know, different career. And like, you, you tried your hand at a lot of different things in the introduction, right? You were like, you did a little acting, you ran for parliament, you know, <laughs> uh, you, you did some athletics, like, um, you must have a really interesting and diverse network. And it's gotten probably more so in the last eight years now that you're connecting with all these speakers around the world, uh, which is how you and I got to know each other through online networks. 
So how do you think about that? Like, do you have any thoughts around how you build your network? Is there a system to it? Is it, is it thoughtful? Is it happenstance? Like, how, what's the approach been so far? Um, a lot of it has been just organic. It's just sort of happened along the way. And particularly, you know, before we had online networking, um, I did have a fairly strong network, particularly locally, and that was as they're getting involved in local uh, community activities, um, getting involved in local politics, as um, that was certainly a lesson in resilience in itself. Um, and just did, you know, through work groups, through, um, you know, just through through social stuff, um, it was that was that was really good, and just keeping in touch with people even back then. We said we had mobile phones and email and stuff like that. Um, but I also used to I also used to throw like a, a monthly barbecue at my house. So there was like one Friday a month after work that it was pretty much everyone knew there was a barbecue at my house, and so it was work colleagues, it was colleagues from the community, it was old school friends, it was things like that. So I've always sort of seen myself as I guess being able to help create other people's networks and I've always gotten great joy from bringing together all of the diverse people in my own personal network and then allowing that sort of cross-pollination to happen and that's been fantastic and then seeing, you know, some of my mutual friends become friends and go off and do things together. Um, But once we sort of had social networking, particularly LinkedIn, LinkedIn has been transformational for me and it has been probably it's such a central part of how I've built my business and I was going back through um, the other day and I was just did an updated like a speaker profile and I had a big long list of clients I've worked with and I was just going down the list going LinkedIn, 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 how these all came about and so probably about five, six years ago I, I was on LinkedIn but I made a really clear commitment that I was actually going to have real conversations with as many people as possible. So I actually set out to, when I, when I was contacting people, I, per, I personalised everything um, the, way before anyone personalised anything on LinkedIn. And then I would reach out to people. I always made a bit of a game of it. I was like, these people are never going to even accept my request, let alone have a conversation with me. So it was, I sort of gamified it a little bit. Um, and then it was amazing. I would then either have a phone call or a cup of tea and I was like, but these were the CEOs, managing directors of really large companies and government departments and would just have a conversation with no expectation, no pitch, just an element of curiosity and wanting to know about another human. Wow. Like, okay, I have to pause you there. Like, okay, because there's some good stuff in here and I I don't want to lose it. So... One, you got involved in your local community, and that's a great place for people to start. So joining boards, you know, joining committees, getting involved in activities and events, um, getting involved in your local political scene with all of its ups and downs, but it's still a very good way to get known and connected. And then the fact that you hosted a monthly barbecue at your house and you invited everybody. And I think that's awesome. I, I operate that same way. I mean, I can remember back to high school having friends in all the different social circles and cliques and then saying everyone like come together. And that, like you said, mutual friends connecting and finding their own friendships, always really kind of awesome. Um, but that, that's a certain person. Not everyone would, not everyone would A, think to host at all and B would think, oh, I have to host, 
you know, one month will be this group and the next month will be that. And you're like, no, 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 no. The value is that everyone shows up. So that that's always really awesome. And then um, where you took us just now. So like, all right, now, <laughs> where were we? <laughs> it's just so many good things. What was the last thing you just said? LinkedIn land. Oh gosh, LinkedIn, the personalization and the fact that you're getting on the phone with people. Yes, like that's tremendous. This is why I don't repeat it before I lose all train of thought. So even though you were doing it way before anyone was thinking about personalizing, all that would work today, right? Like if someone were to try to repeat what you just did, do you think it would still be effective? I certainly don't think it's as effective as it is now. Um, I think, again, being an early adopter on platforms can be incredibly valuable and making that commitment. Um, obviously, there was, you know, there was probably lots of times where I did end up getting, you know, blocked where I had to I had to have to use an email to connect with people, which that, that was fine. Um, I probably got a little bit too enthusiastic early on and might have hit a few too many I don't know this person. Um, but, yeah, I, I'm actually, it's been really interesting. I was in my LinkedIn last night and I was going through the connection requests that I've received. I don't send a lot out um, other than people that I meet or I've, you know, been at the same event with and things like that. Um, or I see someone in the media, like I might read a media article and about a company that's doing something really interesting and then I'll actually go onto LinkedIn and I'll find that person and I'll send a connection request with a very personalised message about what um, what inspired me about what they're doing or something like that. But what I'm finding is the incoming stuff I'm receiving, I just ignored a stack of them because a stack of them were like, oh, I, I help coaches get better leads. I'm a virtual assistant in the Philippines. Um, like it was all just everyone that I know just from what their stuff is, they're going to pitch me. And I, and I feel, yeah, it's you proven you get the same thing. I do get the same thing. And I've actually for a while was sending them a note and like I had a PPS that said, like, I'm not looking... <laughs> to be sold on coaching, like, or how to find, you know, people, clients on LinkedIn or whatever. Um, but, ne- but I've, but they're still so persistent. I've now started just deleting the invites because it's just, it's so disingenuous. Um, and it gets, it distracts me from the people who are excited to talk to me. Like, I love when people say, oh, I heard you as a guest on this show. Like, I want to connect or I heard you speak. I want to connect or so-and-so told me to check you out. And I did. Like those I jump to because those are, that's, I mean, that's what personalization means, right? It's not just, I think, you know, what is it like? I, I think you have a great profile and I love the work that you're doing. And I'm like, that's not personalized. <laughs> you can write that about everybody. That's <laughs> not personalized. It so, is. And yeah. yeah. And what I also do is if there's one that obviously that the, you know, my radar you know, has not, it's gone through my filters to go, okay, I'm curious about this person. Then when I accept a request, I actually, in that, I, I will I will say, you know, thanks for your invitation. It's great to connect with you. Um, was there something that prompted you to connect? Mm-hmm. Because I really want to I really want to find out what was it that they're wanting to connect for. Um, and then I'll ask them a question about, um, you know, what's been a highlight of their week or what are they most looking forward to or just something like that, just to open a conversation. And then at the very bottom of it, I might put a little PS that will go, um, you know, look, if you're interested in finding out about my book, let me know. I'd love to send you a complimentary copy, something like that. But it's a, you know, it's a very after everything and it's a very soft, um, you know, opening that invitation. Um, but, you know, I had one of the connection requests I received. It was like, 
um, actually in the connection request asking if they could add me to their newsletter about their app to help event planners. (laughs) Seriously, I'm like, you know. Well, at least they were upfront about it. (laughs) They were. So it made it very easy for me to say ignore. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> Decision made. I, LinkedIn's fantastic and most people are probably not utilizing it to its fullest extent. Um, and there, there are lots of ways to go about it, but I think what you're doing sounds wonderful. And um, I definitely think that anybody who's getting a lot of inbound requests should come up with some sort of message to send out to people that is about, hey, how'd you find me? You know, why, why are you? Why made you think to reach out now, you know, ask a question, share a little bit about yourself, start a conversation. And uh, I'm amazed how many people ignore my message back after I say, yes, let's connect. <laughs> and I I'm like, totally not sure why they connected then. It's just like... It's, it's, it's almost like people are still collecting, collecting connections. Yeah, which and we're so past. <laughs> we are so past it. Yeah. My network is so large now on LinkedIn that... I just, there's no point in that. But I, I agree with you. We really need to have a system for that. And also um, not being afraid to accept one that we think looks good because we can always block them or report them or just disconnect with them afterwards if we need to. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And um, I think this is interesting because there's there's the LinkedIn sort of like open network folks who, the lions, who will say yes to sort of everybody um, but you think you're advocating sort of not quite that, but also more openness in the sense that if they're in your industry or in your region or they put a personalized note, like say, you know, I think some people are like, well, I haven't met them in person. I can't vet them. But like you're not having to like vet them. You know, I'm not going to refer somebody if I don't know them, that kind of thing. So, okay. How about, uh, again, on networking, you have your inner circle of people who've been your champions and and love you and support you. Then there's like that second and third layer out, the people that you see once a year at a conference or you got to know through some online group or five years ago you work with them, but you're not currently doing so. How do you nurture and sustain connections with that sort of outer layers, the fringe parts of your network? Do you have any habits, philosophies? There's a few things, like particularly if there's people in in that sort of periphery that I would really like to nurture a a stronger connection with, but I don't have anything immediate to, to, I guess, offer because I don't want to just be, it's hard because you want to go, I'd be nice to catch up, but like it's, these people are really busy as well. And and sometimes it's like, well, if you don't know what the premise of that catch up is going to be. So what I've done with particularly people that I want to nurture that stronger relationship with I've actually set up Google alerts on their name or on their company names. So then if something pops up that they're speaking at a conference or they've had an award win or they've had a change of role, and then I, they, I, I always, I'm always looking for reasons to actually reach out and get in touch with people. And that could be a text message. It could be an email. It could be a, a little video message. Or even on LinkedIn these days you can record an audio message to send to somebody, or it may be I, I have I have this big box of like different greeting cards, and I love just popping a little note and sending off a card to somebody. And some of them are you know just a thank you card, a congratulations card. Um, I've got some really there's a you know it's a local designer that had some really cool ones. Like I've got this one with a skateboard that says, "Dude, I like how you roll." Um, there's ones that are like you know little Star Wars characters, like maybe the horse be with you. Like there's always really quirky things, 
Um, and it, so it's not like I've got like this branded card with a picture of myself on the back because I know some people do that as well. And I'm like, it's a little bit too much. Um, but it's just anything just to sort of go, I'm thinking about you and just to pop up on their radar and or connect them with permission. It could be to refer them for um, a gig. It could be to refer them for a media opportunity. I do that. I, I see a media call out and I'll actually reach out to people in my network. I may not have had a, had a conversation with this person in 12 months, but if I see something that I feel would be a good opportunity for them, then I'll reach out, send them a message and go, hey, I saw this and thought of you. Let me know how you go. So it's just always having these things on your radar, isn't it? Yeah, it's interesting because none of those things sound hard. Um, and yet most of those things people aren't doing on a regular basis. So, And some of it's about planning. Like you have a stack of cards. Um, that also means you collect people's mailing addresses somewhere along the way. You're gonna, if you know you want it to do that at some point and that you're looking for a reason to reconnect. You know, so social media is helpful in that way. Like LinkedIn tells you when people get promotions or job changes. Facebook tells you when they have a baby, you know, they get married, <laughs> they move. Like, you know, so you get a little bit of information that way. Birthdays are another, obviously, time. But I like that you got offline somewhat with this. That, you, you know, I think, uh, gosh, on Facebook, I must get several hundred you know, happy birthday messages on my wall. And I could literally spend all day just liking each one of them and, and like saying thank you and like not actually celebrating my birthday. <laughs> so well, I yeah, mostly I, miss them. I actually right? took my birthday off my profile because I don't want a stack of people wishing me happy birthday because it popped up on their feed. So you wanted to see who shows up when they don't know? Yeah, it's not, it's not just that. It's like, again, as you said, it's your birthday. Like the last thing you want to do is feel like you have to engage with all of this Yeah, But stuff, if someone texts me on my birthday. That's different. That feels so different. Or they call and sing happy birthday. Mm-hmm. Even if I'm out and I don't answer and I go check with the voicemail. Like the, I like that you're taking things and, and like there's almost like an analog nature that I think we should remember the importance and value of that and that you want to stand out a little bit. So even if it, even if Facebook is the reason you remember the birthday, how do you make it a little extra special? Um, so do things like that. So, and then I love the Google alert. Very, very clever because that's a great way to stay top of mind or have them stay top of mind for you at a moment when they need it. Now, um, I have a good friend, Dory Clark. If I put a Google alert for Dory... It would be pinging. It'd be flooded. <laughs> be pinging all day, and uh, weekly, weekly digest for Dory. Yeah, it would not really work. Congratulations, 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 congratulations. Um, but she's probably like the extreme. So for most of us, we probably could do that. So this is really cool. I, these are great, great practical strategies. What I love about this is that I didn't bring you on as a networking expert. I brought you on as one of the people who have been like just living this, and so clearly you have actually developed some really great processes that other people can adapt into their own life and find ways to, to bring more value to people. It sounds like front and center for you is about adding value to others. And once you got that message in your head, it feels like everything else fell into place. <laughs> so, Yeah, it's, it's, it makes such a difference. And, and then and the similar things in person, like if I'm at an event or something like that, it's always being curious about other people, um, yeah. you know, having good questions, um, I, you know, I never, never give my card without it being asked for. Like, there's lots of little things like that. It's um, yeah, just being, just I think it's just constantly being interested in other people makes it so much easier. Yes, be interested, not interesting. That is that is the famous quote. So, uh, here's one of my favorite questions, and we are coming to the end of our time together on this. So, 
I want to know if we're connecting a year from now. I, I know we're going to stay in touch, but let's say a year from now, I mark the moment and I say, wow, Stacy, what a year you have had. Like, I want to know what we're going to be celebrating. What are you most looking forward to in the year ahead? Yeah, I'm super excited about actually getting out and running some of my own workshops mm-hmm. um, because I've been doing loads and loads of keynoting and I realized that there's a lot of people that want to go deep on a lot of this stuff. So that's been good. I actually, at four o'clock in the morning, laying awake the other morning, I actually just designed an entire new workshop around gratitude um, because gratitude is something that is a central part of my experience. And it was the shift to being grateful for the experience I've had and how the accident I had changed my life has changed everything. So, yeah, 12 months from now, I really am excited about developing some really strong networks and communities around gratitude, um, but making it something a lot more practical and a lot more in-depth and a lot more part of people's lives other than just going, you know, what's three things I'm grateful for today? I think it's a starting point, but there's just so much more depth on that. Um, So that's super exciting. And, yeah, looking forward to actually venturing over to your part of the world at some point in time. Um, There's just, I think, it's been on my radar for several years now to, I actually started the process of getting my US visa and then I sort of pulled back on it because just the physical challenges I have with travel um, has been something that has really has really got me to really, really try and do as much work as I can in Australia and especially in Sydney. But I'm, I just know that there's amazing opportunities of and connecting in person with incredible people that I am connected with online. And so I'm really looking forward to doing that and to really be able to get to hit some stages over there. I just feel that, you know, the message I have and, and, you know, being Aussie, definitely helps it's always nice to have a different accent and a different um you know diversity is something that is just so important in you know in our industry and so to be able to hit that with being you know um from a different country um being female being someone with a visible disability there's lots of elements that I really feel are that I being visible is going to be something that is going to be able to help show people that it's possible to do that, even if we are not what we see on TV or in the media every day. Yeah. I I can see how the Aussie accent doesn't help if you're staying in Sydney doing all of your work. (laughs) It probably doesn't give you any extra bonus points there. So I can't wait for you to come stateside and and, um, make sure that we, we connect when you do do that. This has been a fantastic conversation, Stacey. I so appreciate you being here. How can people find you and follow your work? Yeah, probably the easiest thing to do is just to punch Stacey Copas into Google. Um, you'll probably have about 20 pages to work your way through. But if you, um, I think LinkedIn is probably the, the, is such a good starting point. I'm super active on LinkedIn. I'm active on Instagram as well. Um, and yeah, probably you can find all of that stuff from, from my website and obviously from your show notes. Yeah, I will have all those links. I'll have LinkedIn, Twitter, and your website uh, and your book, uh, How to Be Resilient, The Blueprint for Getting Results When Things Don't Go to Plan. Well, that all in the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Thank you so much, Stacey. Thanks, Robbie. It's been fun. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Stacey. Such a pleasure to speak with her and learn about her leadership journey. 
What is your key takeaway from our conversation? Something you'll put into action this week that you'll benefit from for years to come. Share it resonated with you in the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Look for episode 157. That's also where you'll find all the links and resources from today's show, as well as over 150 archived episodes on this Pinterest-inspired page. Reach out and let me know which ones were your favorites. You may know I speak about strategic and inclusive networking, but you may not know that I work with associations to increase retention, engagement, and member value by creating more welcoming and inclusive conference experiences. I do this through speaking, pre-event webinars, consulting, first-timers orientations, receptions for people attending solo, and so much more. Do you know a conference that could use my help? I'd welcome an introduction. Learn more about my work at robbysamuels.com forward slash associations. If you enjoyed this episode with Stacy, please share with your friends and don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss next week's show. Remember, subscribing is always free. Are you a fan? That's awesome. I'd love to read your review in Apple Podcasts. It's easy to find our page at itunes.ontheschmooze.com. Thank you in advance. And I look forward to connecting again next week when I'll be interviewing another talent professional about their untold stories of leadership and networking. We'll explore their career challenges, work-life balance, and how they built a strong professional network on their way to becoming successful leaders. Until then, have an amazing week. Thanks for listening to On the Schmooze podcast at www.ontheschmooze.com. That's On the Schmooze, S-C-H-M-O-O-Z-E. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.